There was some speculation. They had talked to an expert. The defense had talked to an expert that suggested that this was some sort of drug-induced psychosis that could be triggered by the marijuana usage. You know, we felt that was a little outlandish in the fact that she had smoked marijuana like 30 hours prior to this incident. Warning. The podcast you're about to listen to may contain graphic descriptions of violent assaults, murder, and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Murder Police Podcast. The Murder of Ronald Browning, Part 4 of 4. During the interview, you talked about how she'd calmed down a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Did she display much emotion in any kind of direction when she described the events? Did she display anger when she gets to certain parts, or was she matter of factual? How did that look on her demeanor? You know, I would, I would have to say throughout the whole investigation, even all the way through prosecution, she had a very uh, self-centered uh, approach to everything. She never at any point showed what I would consider to be remorse in any fashion. She never, uh, you know, she acknowledged having done these things, but she always felt like something else had forced her to do it. You know, even throughout, you know, one of the things that we do when it comes to prosecution time, sometimes we'll get jail calls or things like that and review these things. And even from the very get-go of her being locked in this facility, you know, the only thing she's talking about is this shampoo's terrible. You know, these, these the food here is just terrible, Mom. You need to bring me bring me better shampoo, bring me better food, these sort of things. She never is talking about, I can't believe I did this thing or, you know, anything of that sort that you would expect from, from a, no- a normal person. We never saw that from Camille. Well, the elephant in the room and in that interview room that day too is mental health. And I'm sure that that started to buzz across your mind a little bit oh, as course. a possibility. Because we can see it. I think it would be stupid not to look at it. And I always tell people that doesn't stop you from talking to the person. You acknowledge it. Probably you don't, you would be thinking about that because we've seen that too. I mean, we, now we've seen people feign mental health issues on violent crimes, right? And they usually they're finally diagnosed as malingering or which is another fancy word for lying. But every now and then you, you find that. But definitely during the interview, we've all had experiences where you've got something that's like, yeah, there's something else, could be something else on board on this. And then I don't know that we got into it necessarily in the interview, but something we considered along with mental health was intoxication impairment. Yeah, I was so, going to go, yeah. you know, we, we looked at those factors and, and later determined that she had you know, used some marijuana the day prior and that had, had some paranoia from that use. You know, we actually, uh, Morgan actually interviewed another person that she'd been with that had, had used some of the same marijuana, you know, to see if there were any effects on her that were abnormal because we, we did know, you know, that she had been a, a marijuana user. I mean, I believe she told us that mm-hmm. at that time. I mean, she'd been in college and she had left college. She left home, went to college at Western university and then had, you know, lived, you know, uni- unique life there for a short time before moving back here to Beckley. She had only been back here you know, a short time prior to this happening. Did the other person who used marijuana with her have any odd symptoms or any? Side effects. 
you know, that was the one thing that we want to check. Obviously. Sure, I love uh, that. Yeah, you know, so we actually spoke to her, and, and to our surprise, she actually indicated that Camille had only taken one puff off of marijuana joint, and that they had received this bag, and that this girl had actually smoked the entire rest of that bag and never had any symptoms or never any paranoia or any any situation good like work that. i like that i don't know if everybody think to to go back and do that that's actually pretty cool stuff yeah well as you know i mean you have to prepare for the defenses that are going to come so we meet with our prosecutors you know we brainstorm we we look at different avenues and then we try to counteract those defenses as best possible with interviews clarifying interviews and things like that perfect that's i mean really that's good work the same thing goes too, uh, and I was thinking, and of course this could come up. I'm going to assume as she went through the process, she was had mental health evaluations. Am mm-hmm. I, is that correct? She did, yeah. yes, yeah. But you know, in the beginning too, did did you ever find out if she was being medicated at the time for anything or treated for any mental illness before? She then? was not. Uh, there was no indication of that. Uh, she had not received any kind of treatment of that sort. Interesting. There so, was no known history with her that I, that I can recall. Mm-hmm. Now, when you when you concluded the interview, how was y'all's rapport with her? I mean, when you left the room, Arthur was very positive. Yeah, yeah, she like I said at that point, she was very agreeable. You know, the, she she kind of laid it all out there for us. She was very nice when we left. We never had a, a crossword with Camille at that yeah. point. At, after that, I'd have to go back and and just reasonably assume probably because y'all did some rapport building on the side of the road and. And oh, yeah. that's so critical, so critical that they, because it's all about sitting down in that room and and having a relationship with that person to where there's some trust that comes out of it. Yeah, I think it's it's a two way street, and, and a lot of times, you know, it's one thing we worked at, to educate our patrol officers on. You know, a lot of times, they're responding in a chaotic situation, and they respond with chaos, and we have to try to step aside from that. You know, there's nothing I hated more than having a you know search warrant or something, and, and have a unit in there, and they're aggressive or, or verbally aggressive and then i have to try to interview this person and you know which a lot of times works our favor we're the person offering them something to drink something to eat being friendly it's been horrible hadn't it yeah well let me get you something to eat and drink and you and me are going to get along differently yeah amen it I don't, i'll say back in my pd i was proud of them because i don't think that really ever happened they got it you know they they could detach and stuff like that they I don't think I ever had an instance where they tried, but we have seen that before. There's no doubt about that in other places, maybe. So you complete, which I would, I'd say is a good interview. I mean, obviously, especially when you get down to that point where somebody just starts talking, because that'll take you off guard. You go into some interviews and you're like, okay, here we go, that this is going to be a marathon. A real quick anecdotal about how that's different as I had a uh, beating death one time, and when I finally identified a suspect, he did not speak English, so I had a uh, an interpreter in the room with me, and I remember talking to the interpreter, and it, this was a long time ago. He wasn't really formally into it, but we got through it, but I remember telling him, I'm going to do this. We're going to read this thing. I need you to read. For, this is Miranda. I need you to be really berated in my head. Him, We did the whole thing, and I said, now listen, I'm going to get you something to drink. We may be in here for a while. We get in there, and he interprets and reads him the Miranda. And the suspect, I can't understand what he's saying, but he makes a sign of the cross, cross his chest. And he says two or three things, and the guy looks over and he goes, uh, yeah, he said he fucked him. Excuse my French, but he's, and I said, what? And he goes, yeah, he, he said he hit him, and let me ask him. A, and anyway, he went right into it. And I'm like, oh, that, yeah, I'm glad I told you we'd be in here a few hours, you know. But you're grateful for those moments. And sometimes maybe it speaks to them a little bit. I, I think, sorry, I, th- I think it's rare 
you know, that we sit down with someone who is immediately openly honest. Almost everyone tries to minimize, even if they're telling you, even if they're confessing, they minimize so much and they try to paint themselves, you know, like most favorable. And you, know, you have to pry it out and you have to confront them. I don't really feel like we had to do that with her. In hindsight, maybe we could have done even more, but it, uh, it was such a bizarre interview and just the way she just provided all the information and never, you know, I don't, I never felt the remorse or, the, or anything to that nature, but it was definitely, you know, she was just laying out what happened. I've always told people don't ever confuse a, an admission or a confession with accountability or the truth. Sometimes it might happen, but you're right, Dave, it's rare. And part of the, uh, the secret in getting in a room is making whatever they're going to tell you reasonable in their mind. I always said that I have to open a window and take them through that window, which means I might agree with things or you might agree with things that we don't agree with. But at some point, I think you're dealing with narcissism, right? And you have to paint that whole thing about what works for them in that moment. And that's the goal. So fantastic work on that. So you, you get what I'd say is a good interview. How do, we, how do we move forward there on Inbound for Trial and things like that? We'll be back after a quick break. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Well, you know, actually the next step is is we actually went out and tried to locate some surveillance video. Because nice. from the statements that she gave us, we determined certain things. Uh, one, that she had left the house the time she had left. Uh, we determined she jogged down the street. So we went back to Westwood Drive, and we actually located residents, had some surveillance cameras there. Uh, it corroborated the information that she gave. It showed that she was jogging down the street. We checked at a couple other places, tried to get video of her, secured video from the hospital, from the jail. You know, those were all things that were done during subsequent activities. At that point, it was kind of meet with our prosecutor. And talk to talk to her, tell her what we have, explain this uh, situation, and then kind of get into the actual prosecution part down the road. Who was the prosecutor? And give them a shout out. Yeah, at that point, Kristen Keller had been the prosecutor for many, many years here. Just recently actually left, and now we have a new prosecutor. But she was kind of the, the head prosecutor for, what, 20, 20 years? Probably, I believe since 82 is when she got hired and she was the head prosecutor for a substantial amount of time. And she hit, just like Ray, the DA, you know, exactly. listen to him. There's not a better prosecutor in this state than Kristen Keller. You definitely wanted her on your side when you were going to trial. You know, she had a very eccentric mind. She was just very amazing. The best, I would say the best trial attorney that I've ever seen. And uh, she thinks of every, everything, every case law, everything. And so, I mean, they spent, as you can imagine, you know, weeks, maybe months preparing for this case with all the different meetings back and forth. And That's a tight relationship to get ready for that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Ray the DA, God rest his soul. You know, we lost him about a year ago. I don't think people from the outside understand how much work they'll put you through for all the right reasons. And it, let's be real clear too. It's not always about driving home a, a slam dunk conviction because that is part of it. 
But it's the whole thing of exposing truths and documenting those truths, exculpatory information, the whole bit. Because just like you want to firm your case up, you also want to document the things that somebody could accuse you of withholding. That's a, that's a problem in some, in some investigations. Sounds like she's good news. Well, she's Sounds the best. Like she's good yeah. news. So, so you, you start that process with her. And again, we, I, I was going to assume the mental health evaluations. Do you remember how those came out? Did they make yeah. any rulings? She had been sent for two. The, the first one was a defense-led diagnostic system process. They didn't really come to a necessarily a conclusion, so they, they decided to send her for another. And, and unfortunately, this, this doctor, again, there was never really a definitive conclusion. There was some speculation. They had talked to an expert. The defense had talked to an expert that suggested that this was some sort of drug-induced psychosis that could be triggered by the marijuana usage. You know, we, we felt that was a little outlandish in the fact that she had smoked marijuana like 30 hours prior to this incident. But that was something that the defense had put forth. And unfortunately, we couldn't necessarily find a specialist that would counteract that or, or disagree. I think a lot of people were kind of in the state that we are now. We may never know really uh, what caused her to act this way or to do these things. And there again, after she had done these things, I, I would describe it as pretty normal. You know, our, our conversations with her, she never was, you know, after that visit to the hospital. We never had any more issues with her. She never was violent. She never was disrespectful. She was very polite and nice and docile. In the courtroom, she, it would, you know, shocking. You would see this girl that was accused of these things, and if you brought a layperson in that had not been involved, they would never believe you because she was just so calm and nice and polite to the judge, and just, it, it was shocking to see that side and knowing that she had been responsible for something of this nature. They made a defense with that, but really what the mental health evaluations are for is, in the most simplest terms, is what was their state when they committed the crime? Did they recognize they were doing it? And then the other two is, is are they capable of participating in their own defense when it comes through? That's kind of the two, and I'm oversimplifying those, but that's kind of the two real things. But the other thing that weaves into it is that's why everybody gets their own kind of piece of the pie to see how they can put icing on that cake. That's exactly Which, right. which is your job as an attorney. I'm not knocking it. That's your job. I mean, and the one sure. thing to me that stood out is... She attempted to cover up her crime, but she was going to burn it. She knew that she may get caught, and what she had done was wrong. She was unsuccessful in being able to to burn it. Huge. But I think that goes to some degree to showing that she knew at the time what she was doing was not, you know, allowed. It was was wrong. That's why that stuff's important to have. And I agree that is what's going on. Is you know they're looking at it that that whole thing of was I aware? You know, because there's a there's big difference between somebody that. We've met them that, that really truly have mental health issues that you could look at, and then they get a value, and you're like, that was that was out in space. But those are rare. Many more people try to pretend that than, than actually have that. So did it go to trial eventually? Uh, it didn't in the end. You know, I should mention also that one of the things that we determined from the diagnostic interviews that she had done, and plus, plus our kind of background investigations uh, on her, is she'd been leading a little bit of a double life. You know, that's a, we were a little surprised to see that because we, you know, we'd seen both sides of her. We'd seen her violent, but we'd also seen her in this docile state. And what we were able to determine is that when she went away to college, she had actually dropped out of college pretty early on, had been still receiving funds from her parents or from her mother as though she was going to college. She, she had started working in a, a gentleman's club in the area near her, the college she was attending. Things that 
got involved with drugs. There, there were some accusations of, of prostitution. We didn't ever verify that. But uh, there was a lot of things that came out of those interviews that were not what being portrayed to, to her family and to her, you know, the other individuals that knew her. Did you ever get around the family enough to see how they responded to that? You know, unfortunately, they didn't have a whole lot of, of interaction with us, no, you know, because they obviously were on different sides of sure. the situation. So we didn't have a whole lot of, of interaction. But what we did have interaction with was some of the, because one of the things about it is Camille's well known in the community. You know, the pastors came forward, the council members from our local council came forward. All these people came to speak on Camille's behalf. And I think a lot of what we found out is a lot of them were surprised by this information. And I think she lost a lot of support on that side once they found these things out that she wasn't quite what she had portrayed. Yeah, they were probably taken off guard by that. And, you know, I always, you probably saw that too with a lot of uh, suspects' families. That's a hard hit. Absolutely. I mean, they're dealing with with so much. I always left a lot of room. You know, they're going to be angry with you and me and everybody and with your prosecutor. That's natural because we advocate for the people we love, right? But but at the same time, you know, they're dealing with something that's significant as far as that shock that that person that they know and loved and, and, and dealing with, uh, questioning themselves on that that that's a hard ride to take especially when this ugly opens up and they oh, learn yeah. things like that yeah that had been that had been very difficult on our family and one thing i you know i've always tried to impart there's no winners never situation never and from the suspect side the, the victim side the families these people have people that love them the people that do horrendous things a lot of times come from great people and, and i think that's the case here yeah she probably has a fine family, and and they're they're yeah. suffering through it. it. Just I remember so many times watching that. I remember we had a a guy that was tried as an adult that shot a liquor store owner and killed him. And I remember his grandfather. You know, when we go to trial, you could tell he was pretty angry and stuff like that. And I remember one time we didn't debate, but we were in the hall, and I said, "Listen, just do me a favor and go in there and pay attention." And uh, the kid actually testified, which he had to it was a death penalty case and believe it or not he had kind of cleared a polygraph but he gets on the stand and says yes i pulled the trigger and it was sad because after the trial i see his his grandfather out there and he's crying and he looks at me and he gives me a thumbs up and it's like i don't think people understand it even though we're in an antagonistic system you actually you to some degree you get a rapport with those families because they know you care about them and they know oh, that yeah. you know that they're going through an awful circumstance. I think that's the key is, is the compassion and showing them that you understand where they're coming from. And, and some of my best cases, I would say, or the, the best officer was that family member of the suspect convincing them to do the right thing or, or coming in and having a talk with them that led to them confessing right. after the fact. Yeah, because, you know, and a lot of attorneys wouldn't agree with it, but I, and I know that you should never talk to the police. When we tell people in that interview room, I, I was always sincere. I, if you'll lay your story out, I'll testify to it. I think that juries look at people differently. They're not supposed to, but if you just sit there with your arms crossed and never talk to anybody, that's a different story. But that had been a shocker for Camille's family. Oh, no doubt. No so, doubt. So it ended up not going to trial? It did not. No, there were plea negotiations that went on for a long period of time. You know, Obviously, with all the diagnostics, testing that was involved and all the... Uh, mental evaluations. It took a long time. She she had had a, hired a lawyer out of the Charleston area. It was one that worked pretty well with our prosecutor. In the end, 
those medical evaluations really became a problem, the mental evaluations, because we couldn't really have one final decision either way. And it led to some real risk to, to taking that case to prosecution, uh, to trial. So what it ended up, they offered a, a plea to second degree murder and also to two counts of burglary for going into the homes in Mapscott. And at the end of the day, that was the plea that, that Camille accepted. It was set up to be a 40-year sentence for the murder charge and then two one-to-five sentences for the other charges. At, at sentencing, that judge did not accept agreed plea deals. Uh, he still kind of kept some leeway in that. Uh, so he actually reduced her sentence, and it was reduced to a 30-year sentence and two one-to-fives to run concurrent with that. Yeah, that's their prerogative. Any mention about mental health treatment or anything like that in that no. process? You know, that's probably the frustrating part of this is that she's just locked up in a normal facility at this point in time. I don't know that she's receiving it. She may. I don't. To my knowledge, she's not receiving any. Specific. And I'm assuming. I'm going on the assumption that if if that was the case, I don't want to overassume because we didn't get any. Like you said, the diagnostics didn't show that. And of course, those negotiations are difficult because you're working with a victim and surviving victim's family. I mean, they've got to be taken into consideration in that too. So, where's she housed? Uh, she's at, right now. She's at a Lakin facility here in West Virginia. It's in the Lewisburg area, I believe. It's a medium security female facility. Well, thank both of you for uh, letting me come to Beckley today. And thanks for the hospitality of the Beckley Police Department. We're in, a, again, a beautiful building and a great conference room to do this. Morgan, thank you uh, for the detail and, and more so for the diligence in this. Because, again, this isn't all about just putting people in prison. It's about finding the truth. And to find the truth, you have to be detailed. So fantastic work. Very articulate story. I, th- I think you got all the details out that, that were just fascinating. I literally was on the edge of my seat listening to this every time you brought something up. So thank you very much for doing this. Well, thank you. I appreciate Hopefully, it. if we get other cases, I'd like to have you back. And then my friend Dave, Deputy Chief Allard, great to see you again. For people who don't know, the FBI National Academy is a, a 10-week, almost life-altering experience in Quantico that some of us get fortunate to, to go to. And what, 250 people from 26 countries? Am I close on that? 47 states. 47 states. Yeah. And and for what it's worth, we all stay in touch on a social media app and everything. So fantastic seeing you. And, and Great seeing on. you. And we appreciate you traveling here for this and telling uh, Mr. Browning's story. Yeah, it, it, yeah Mr. Browning and, and his family do. I, one of the things we like doing is, is offering them up for who they were. To, so they're known something that's just a crime victim or a number because under – national statistics that's what they become so thank you all again thank Thank you. you the murder police podcast is hosted by wendy and david lyons and was created to honor the lives of crime victims so their names are never forgotten it is produced recorded and edited by david lyons the murder police podcast can be found on your favorite apple or android podcast platform as well as at murderpolicepodcast.com where you will find show notes, transcripts, information about the presenters, and much, much more. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, which is closed captioned for those that are hearing impaired. Just search for the Murder Police Podcast and you will find us. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe for more and give us five stars and a written review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcast from. Make sure to subscribe to the Murder Police Podcast and set your player to automatically download new episodes so you get the new ones as soon as they drop. And please tell your friends.
Lock it down, Judy.